Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. We're going to heavily look at a couple of things um, in the first part of those verses that maybe we might not typically look at or think about uh, when we're looking at Philippians chapter 3. This is one of the most important texts in all of the New Testament. And Paul kind of takes a, uh, a, a pause in what he's saying, and he, he often does this. He'll pause on something that he's saying and then reflect on something uh, that God has done or, or kind of draw us back to who we are in God and, and the gospel truth. And it's just such an incredible way that Paul writes. Um, I love it because he does it all the time. And it's just like he, he gives us something very difficult and hard, and then he just pauses and praises. And it's like he either goes to God in prayer or he sings a song or or he reminds us of the gospel. And it's like this, this depth of truth was so powerful in Paul's heart. He just can't get too many paragraphs into his letters before he praises. Um, and I love that about him. And this is one of those examples where he does that. So uh, take your Bible, Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. But if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, we would love to give you one. And you can certainly take one of those Bibles that's on the welcome table on your way out. That would be our free gift to you. Uh, but let's pray together as we get started. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to gather together today to worship you, to praise you, to hear from you. And Lord, this morning as we open your word, I pray that that would be the case, that we would hear from you, that you would speak to our hearts and minds. Lord, I know that each one of us, we desperately need to hear from you. Lord, whether we know it or not, whether we're, our hearts are prepared or not, we desire, we long, we want to hear your voice, to hear your truth, for it to, to be entrenched in our hearts and minds. And so God, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that you would speak to us in exactly the way that we need to hear. I pray that you would help us to cut out all distractions and that we would just be able to focus in on your word because we need this text to be true in us. And God, I pray that you would make it so. We need it so desperately bad. Lord, we lift up the, the church of our city this morning. It's all over our city right now and later today. Your word will be proclaimed and your people will gather. I pray this special blessing on your people today and all of those who will be proclaiming your word. God, that you would move in power and that many people would come to know you, that today would be the best day of their lives, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior, and that many of us, all of us who know you, would grow in you. And we pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. When I, when I read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 specifically, um, there's something that comes to, to my mind. Uh, if you're just studying this text, if you've read ahead on this text, maybe you've thought about this as well. Uh, hopefully, if you're reading uh, scripture, you kind of take time to reflect on what's actually being said here and what should I be thinking about and how should this be affecting me. And, uh, and so it's not just this truth and this knowledge that we gain, but it's this transformation of our hearts. And so what should I be learning in this? And one of the questions that really pops into my head when I read this text is, is this reality that I want my life to count. I, I want my life to mean something. I want it to have purpose. I want to be a part of something in, in this insignificant life and self that's bigger than me, that has uh, an eternal meaning and purpose. I, I want my life to count. And I think every single one of us, if we're honest, we have that feeling in us. 
I want my life to count. I want to have meaning. I want to, to live a purposeful life. I want to leave something of a legacy that, that is purposeful and has, uh, has great meaning and, and is desired and, and it could be sought after and pursued after and, and copied by those that I love. We all want to live a life that counts. Each one of us has a similar feeling in that way. I want to count for my family. I want to count in my workplace. I want to count for my community. We all desire to have some form of eternal significance. And, and what I started thinking about was in, in, this, in this idea of what really counts in life. What, what, count, what is, a, is a life that counts? What's a life that has purpose? What's a life that has meaning? And I started to realize that it isn't necessarily what we might think. That to live a life that counts doesn't mean that you have to live a life that's noticed. It doesn't mean that you have to live a life that's famous. It doesn't mean that you have to live a life that a lot of people even look up to. There, there's not a particular uh, way that you have to be known or anything like that, but there is a particular way I came to discover that you have to live. If you want to live a life that counts, there's a way of life that you walk in that purpose, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be noticed or that you will even get credit for it. Um, I was reading a commentary by Peter O'Brien and um, about Philippians, and a, a lot of his books are, are out of print now, but if you can get a hold of them, uh, one of them, they're still very, very good. And uh, I, was, I was hearing a, a story that he told about his own salvation. And uh, he tells the story of how he grew up, and his family, he, were not followers of Christ. And they had a neighbor uh, who was elderly. She lived by herself. She was very sick. She was kind of um, just not coming out of her house very often. Not very many people were coming over, and she was, she was getting her life kind of in order to pass away. She had an illness that was going to take her life, and he said, I just remember nobody really going to her house. She didn't ever really leave her house, but she would come out all the time when we were outside, and she would just talk to our family, and she would just have joy in her life. She would tell our family about Jesus, and none of us were believers, and it had such an impact on his mom that when she passed away, his mom actually gave her life to Christ. They began to go to church, and, and he ends up growing up. He goes to seminary. He becomes a professor. He writes a lot of books. He preaches to thousands. He actually trained hundreds and hundreds of pastors who are preaching all over the world today. And so he had this, this significance in his life, but so did his neighbor. One was very noticed. The other one was not noticed at all. One left this world thinking to herself, I probably did not make a difference. I probably was not someone who anybody uh, looked up to or that God used in significant ways. Yet, when we study the book of Philippians and we read Peter O'Brien's commentary and we bring truth to uh, the congregation today of what Peter O'Brien wrote, both the neighbor who is unnamed and the professor who's spoken to, to thousands of people and trained hundreds of pastors bring a significance to what we see in God's word today. There was a life that counted, though one was noticed, and one had evidence, and one did not. And what we see, even in this little bit of evidence that I just shared with you, is that a life that counts is a way of life. 
A life that counts is a way of life, and it may or may not be seen. So here's the question. If all of us want to live a life that counts, if all of us have this eternal desire to have eternal significance, and it's a way of life, and it's not just a a life that is noticed that counts, then what actually makes a life that counts? What is it that makes our lives count? Is it something that we just stumble upon? Is it something that we're given? Is it something that we have to seek and to find? What is it that makes life count? What is the secret to a life that counts? And then here's a follow-up question. And these are all just things that I'm kind of working through in my own life this week, and and I feel like it's probably something that all of us need to kind of think about. If I want to live a life that counts, what is it that counts? It may not mean that I'm being seen, but, but God is using me in a powerful way. And then the second question is, okay, it's, if, if I know what counts in life, then am I willing to actually live for what counts? See, there's a, there's a way in which we can understand, and, and my my, my thought is for most of us who have probably grown, in, grown up in church, if you've been coming to church here for a while, then as soon as I ask the question, what makes a life that counts, I would assume, I would hope, if you've been coming here for a while, that you know. Like, and, and you're sitting here today, you're like, I'm in church, I don't know, we opened our Bibles, so I'm assuming when you ask the question, what counts, you're going to say, Jesus, right? So, so the answer is kind of cat already out of the bag, Right? And for many of us, we understand and know what makes life count. But the question for many of us is not what makes life count, but are we willing to live in it? Are we willing to lay our lives down for it, whether God wants us to be used in some sort of significance or whether we will be the neighbor who is unnamed? Are we willing to live for something greater than ourselves? Are we willing to live for what really counts? And my thought is, for most of us, we're probably in the category of, I understand what counts, but am I willing to live in it? And as Paul is writing this this letter to the Philippian church and to us about the meaning of life and and how we're to have joy in Christ and, and what Christ has done for us and living and dying and rising and defeating sin and defeating death and, and giving us the ability to place our faith in him and being saved by his grace and the, the, the humility that that brings that we're created to have, this community with God and, and, and the, 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 the longing that we begin to realize and being content in who we are in God and, and not having to pursue things of the world or being enslaved to things of the world, but having the freedom to live out the life that we were created to live, the beauty of the gospel that brings this joy that's untouchable by anything that happens in life, any circumstance that we're in, this contentment that just overshadows every single moment of life. As he's been kind of laying this and fleshing this out for us, that we're made new in Christ, that we are made whole in Christ, that we can live in the freedom that Christ has created us to live in community with him, that we have this new life and new desires and new longings when we place our faith in him, that we can begin to live this, as we've said, this upside-down life, that we, that we see the kingdom of God and everything that we were created to be in him, and we begin to live that out in the world that we live in, and we're not seeking to build something in the world, but we have everything that we need in Christ, and we're content in him and whole in him. And as Paul's been laying all of this out that we've been talking about over the last several weeks together, 
that the joy that we long for and were created for comes in Christ, which, which by the way, the world is beginning to kind of catch up and see. And, and I, I, I pulled like five or six different studies that have been done in the last couple of years that just, that have been done, especially a couple in 2020, just to kind of give, give us a measure on kind of where people are uh, and their mental health and their happiness and all of these different kinds of things. And, and so many studies time and time again are coming back in the last couple of years to say, and they don't necessarily say that it's Jesus and the gospel truth. In fact, none of them do. But they all say that there's something healthy about being in the Word of God and that there's something healthy about being with the people of God. Now, we know that's because of the gospel truth, but, but just a couple of them that I'll share with you really quickly because I, I, I know that some of us, we come into this place and we say, Brandon, that's great, man. I hear you say that every week, that the joy of the Lord is where we want to be. It's what we desire. It's what we long for. It's what we were created for. But anybody can say that. Is there actual evidence outside of the Bible that we can lean on and understand? And the answer is yes. With everything that the Bible says and everything that, the, that we see in Scripture, there are evidences in life. And so just a couple of those that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. Um, the Center for Bible Engagement actually did a study last year. And they, they were doing a study just to kind of see where people were with reading the Bible in America today. And they stumbled upon something they weren't looking for. And we've talked about this several months ago, and so I'm not going to go into detail, but what they found is that if you're actually reading your Bible four or more times a week, or you're in God's Word, so coming to church would count, and then maybe going to small group, and then reading your Bible a couple of times on your own. If you're in the God's Word four times a week, there was significant difference in your health and happiness. Significant difference. Once, not very much significance, really not even a blimp on the radar. If you're just coming to church on Sunday, God's word is not going to have a huge significance on your mental health, on your happiness, on your joy, on your, on your physical health. But what they found is once you're reading scripture, you're in God's word over half the days of the week, here's some of the things that they found. You're happier, you're less lonely, you're less angry, your relationships are more fulfilling, you're less likely to have a substance abuse all of those by at least 30% more or less likely to have if you're in God's word four times a week. You're also 200 times more likely to share your faith, to be on the mission of God. And we talked several weeks ago about that's actually part of God's equation for joy in our lives. That God's equation for joy is that we would have salvation in him by grace alone through faith, plus we would lean into him. We would grow in him. We would discover him more and more. We would come together as the community of God and have unity of mind and of love and of, of salvation and, and walk towards God together to grow in our understanding of who we are in Christ equals the joy that we are created to have in God. And so we're 200 more times likely to share our faith and have that second part of God's equation to lean in, to be on his mission to have joy in our lives. Another Gallup poll uh, came out just, uh, just last year that took all of the categories in 2020, so sports, work, success, whatever it may be, just tons of categories of what we might find happiness in, 
And they asked the question, if you were happier in any of those things this year or in 2020 than you were in 2019. So they were trying to get kind of a gauge of, of what the pandemic has done to the happiness of people in America. And what they found is the only category that had less depression and more happiness in their life over all the categories, hobbies, work, family, everything was, was categorized. The only category that was less depressed and more happy in 2020 than in 2019 were people who gathered together at the church at least once a week. The only category. See, the world is beginning to pick up on some of these things. Jonathan Haidt, who's an atheist, social psychologist, he said this, and, and he did a study on happiness. He wrote a book about it, which is super interesting. And he said this, Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous in charity and to each other than secular people. And finally, Harvard University did a study just a couple of years ago. I read about it in an article that came out just this week that said there are multiple benefits to Christianity. Professor Tyler Vanderwill said this in conclusion to the study, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would society put on that? And then he said this, religion may be a miracle drug. So here's what I want you to know. When Paul says we are created for God, we're created to worship him, we're created to give him glory, we're created to have joy in community with him, that we cannot have the joy that we long for outside of knowing him and being saved by his grace and his work and leaning into him and growing in the understanding of that salvation that we have. That the joy and contentment in every circumstance comes from Christ alone. We see even in our world today the leanings and understanding that that is a reality. Now, we know it's not just showing up to church. It's not just reading your Bible. It's not just, just being religious or spiritual, but it's actually because of Jesus. That Jesus did actually come and live perfectly on our behalf, that he did die on the cross, that he did rise from the grave, and that we can be saved in him. That we can live in the freedom that he provides for us. And as Paul continues to point this out in this letter, that we would know God and, and know who he is. And in so doing, we would know who we are. We would know how to live and how to, what we were created for and, and what we're called to do. And that we can begin to live in that identity that we were actually created to have. He says in chapter 3, so finally... So finally, all right, so he's wrapped all of these things up in a bow. He's told us who Christ is and who we're created to be in him. And then he says, finally, like a true pastor says, finally, right? He's halfway through the book and the man's trying to say, finally, he's just trying to get everybody to kind of pay attention again, right? He's like, finally, I've got 40 more minutes left to preach, all right? But we're out of the introduction. That's basically what he says. But I love how he says it because it gives every pastor a right to do it if Paul can do it, right? But here's what he says. Finally, I want us to bring all of this together, and I want to remind you of the goodness of God. I said at the beginning that Paul oftentimes just kind of goes off on something and then reels it back in and, and just reflects on the goodness of God. He doesn't want us to forget. He doesn't want us to move on. He doesn't want us to get excited about something that we're doing in God or God is doing through us and forget the good news of the gospel and why we do what we do. And so look at this text with me this morning, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
All of this is taking place. Rejoice. To, I, and, and he says, I rejoice to write the same things to you. It is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he's going to reflect on something he's already said, but he's saying he doesn't mind doing it, right? It's good. It's so good, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. So he cuts right to the point. There's a little pivot there in, his, in his, uh, how he's speaking. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit by the Spirit of God and, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then look at his resume. It says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, so remember our question, what makes a life count? Are we willing to live in it? Whatever I gain, I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on, the, on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain of the resurrection from the dead. What makes a life that counts? What makes a life that counts? Go back to verse one. Look what he says here. Therefore, All of this is true, and so he calls us back to this rejoicing. I want you to rejoice. All of this gospel truth, all that I've said about Jesus, all that we can be in him, it is all a reality. Therefore, rejoice. Rejoice. And listen to me. In Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, in Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Always reason to rejoice. I've come into conviction over this this past week, even in the way that we in the church often rejoice, because I think in the world we look at our circumstances and our things, and we, just, we, we make up our mind whether or not there's reason to be joyful and happy and rejoice. And if we have the circumstances and things that we want, then we rejoice and we're happy. And if we don't, we do not. I think we do the same thing in the church. We just glorify God with whether or not we have the circumstances that we want or we don't. And a lot of times we say, God, thank you for everything that you've done, and thank you for all of these things that you've given, and thank you. And then we list all of these things, and certainly we should be thankful for all of those things, and they give us reason to rejoice that God is good. But here's the conviction I've come under over this last week. God is good whether we have those things or not. We do not worship our circumstances. We've been reading through just a couple of weeks ago. We got out of the book of Job. If you're reading through the Bible with us this year, and Job had everything taken away, and what happened? Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is always reason to rejoice. God is so good. His glory is so magnificent. And if we are his, there is always reason to rejoice that we are his regardless of what we're going through. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the things that we have in our life, there's always reason in Christ to rejoice. And I don't want us to forget, and for this to be on the forefront of our mind when Paul says this, that he is in prison. 
We also know that the Philippian church has affliction upon them. We read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and also Acts chapter 16, that the Philippian church is poor. They've got affliction upon them. They're, they're facing persecution. They're about to go through the greatest persecution known to the church to this point. And yet it says that they're partnering with Paul on the mission of God. And they're partnering with him. They have rejoicing in him, even in affliction. Paul has rejoicing in God, even in prison. Because for the church, their generosity towards the mission of God, their rejoicing in God, is not predicated on their wealth or on their circumstances, but they have a joy in the Lord that comes from knowing him, having salvation in him, who he is and who they've created him, who he has created us to be. So the writer Paul's in prison, the receivers of the letter are reflected, and yet he says, rejoice. Rejoice even when your circumstances do not call for rejoicing. Even when you're going through difficult things and sorrow and there is real pain that you have to work through, there is reason to rejoice. And, and listen, I know that when I say that, some of you are thinking, well, you're not going through what I'm going through. And that sounds really discouraging for me to hear that I, I should just rejoice in the Lord even when I'm going through very difficult things. And my answer to you is yes. And here's why. One, because God is good and he is glorious and he is worthy of rejoicing in regardless of our circumstances. But two, I want you to have a deeper joy than your circumstances can bring. And if you are only joyful in your circumstances, then what you are giving glory to and worshiping are your circumstances, not God. And I want us to understand that there is something worthy of rejoicing in when we know Jesus. I do not want us to have a shallow joy. Paul doesn't want us to have a shallow joy either. And so he says, even in these things, rejoice. If we only know Jesus, then we have reason for joy. We can rejoice in anything. When we count Christ everything, we can rejoice in anything. And then he says, he goes on to say, so in light of all of that, I want to tell you some things as a believer. I want you to grow in your community with God. I want you to grow in your understanding of the gospel truth. And he says, you've heard me speak about this before. I love how he says this. You've heard me talk about this before, but it's no trouble to me, right? Like he's just saying, it's so good. I could say this over and over, and I'm willing to bet, and we'll see this in just a minute, that Paul does say this over and over and over again to himself, that he preaches this truth to himself over and over again. So he says, it's no, it's no trouble for me to continue to share this thing that I've shared with you before. And then he also says, but it's safe for you. You need it. And I've always just kind of skipped over that word. It's safe for you. I've never really investigated that. I've never really looked at it. But, but I spent some time with that this week. And I think it's just a beautiful thing that we need to pull out of this text. But, but here's the reality. The Bible does this over and over again. It shares the gospel truth. Every text, Old Testament, New Testament, every single one is about Jesus. Every single one of them points to the reality of Jesus coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, and what that means. Every single text in Scripture. And Paul is the master of giving us a pure and just true gospel over and over and over again. I think it's because he participates in it in his own life over and over and over again. 
but also just through the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. He continues, as I said, to tell us something and then pause and pull us back to just the pure gospel truth that makes it true. He needs it and we need it in everything that we do all of the time. And I know there's this pattern in Christianity to think that I've, I've been a Christian for a very long time. I've heard the gospel before. I don't really need to hear the gospel again. I know that Jesus died. I know that he rose. I know that I can place my faith in him. I know that I'm saved by grace. And so now I just need to move on and gain some knowledge. I just want to know more. And Christianity just becomes about what you know and, and how you process things and kind of takes the emotion and the affections out. But that's not what Paul is calling us to. Listen, the gospel over and over in our lives, speaking to our own hearts, is medication for us we need daily. We have a chronic problem and temptation towards walking away from our creator and walking away from the things that bring wholeness and completeness and joy and contentment and satisfaction, a life that counts. Even when we know what it is, we have a tendency to walk away into comfort and to follow our own heart. And, and the gospel is the medication that we need in every moment of every day to pull us back into the reality, to be able to walk into what we truly desire. To be able to not only understand who God is, but be able to apply it to our lives, to know truth and then to also understand love, to walk in the truth in love. And the reality is we need this all the time. And for many of us, I know that, that maybe it's not I need to hear it for the first time and give my life to Christ. Maybe you are here today and you haven't given your life to Christ. And I would encourage you today to really wrestle with the reality of who is God? What does make a life that counts? Is Jesus really Lord and Savior? And to place your faith in him. But for many of us, you just need to be encouraged. You don't need a new thing. You don't need new knowledge. You don't need new ideas. You don't need new entertainment. What you actually need to do and be encouraged to do is to take the risk of actually living in the truth you already know of living in the gospel, of reminding yourself of the good news of Christ all the time. Because listen, this truth is good in all places, in all times, for all people. And at all times, in all places, all people need it. So we want to know God. We want to have knowledge of God. We want to grow deeper in him. We want to grow in contentment and joy. We want our lives to be transformed. We want to desire God more. We want to grow in understanding, but we also want to grow in our affection for him. Listen, because Christianity, contrary to popular belief, is not just believing something. It's having faith in the truth. Faith is belief in action. It's not, it's not less than believing, but it's more than believing. It's a belief in action. It's a knowledge that, that works, James says that transforms us, that changes us. And gospel proclamation continually in our lives is the key to that understanding in that life. All right, so I've said that. Now let me try to bring it in and make it practical. What do you mean, Brandon? What do you mean about preaching the gospel to ourselves over and over again? What do you mean I need the gospel truth in my life every day and in every moment and in every way? What do you mean? 
And here's what I want us to understand. You will be tempted every single day, whether you have been a Christian for 50 years or for five minutes, to walk away from the gospel truth actually affecting who you are and walk away from contentment and walk away from joy. Here's how I know, because I face it every day. I wake up in the morning. You probably wake up in the morning. You look in the mirror, and and you're discontent. And there will be a temptation there for you to look in the mirror and think to yourself, if I don't make these things correct, if I don't, if I don't fix these different things, if I don't look this certain way, then who am I and how do I fit in and how will I matter and how will I be perceived? How will I get ahead? There will be a temptation for that. I don't care how much you care about your looks and how much time you spend in front of the mirror. If you get in front of the mirror, that is your heart saying something in you needs to be fixed. And the temptation will be, I have to fix it, or how do I matter? Then you're going to go to work. And when you get to work, or you're watching the kids, which is just work without pay, right? Or you're going to school, and you're going to get to school, or you're going to get to work, or you're going to watch the kids, and you're going to think to yourself, I have to accomplish these certain things. And if I don't get these certain things done, I don't have success in this certain way, then who am I? And how do I live a life that matters? And how do I live a life that counts? How will I be perceived? What will my reputation be? If these kids don't grow up in this way, then what am I? Why do I have them? Why does it matter? If I don't succeed in this way, then how will I be fulfilled? How will I find contentment? Then you're going to get home. And you're going to feel, if I don't get to relax in this way, if I don't get to participate in these hobbies, if my spouse doesn't treat me like I want to be treated, if my kids don't listen to me the way that I want them to listen then why does it all matter? Why am I doing all the things to make and have a life that counts during the day when I wake up and when I go to work and when I do the things that I do? Why am I doing it all? And you're going to find yourself in a lot of discontentment. And you're going to find yourself in a lot of fear because the temptation will be, I don't matter, I don't count if I can't get all of these things. And there's a lot of other things that we could pull into that reality. But this is the way that you're going to be tempted to think over and over and over again in your life. If I don't do this, I don't count. If I can't achieve this, I don't matter. If my kids aren't like this, what kind of legacy will I leave? And you will be discontent and you will be frustrated and you will be angry and you will have bitterness. And you will be working to become something that Jesus says you can already be in him. You'll be looking to use every relationship that you have instead of revealing what you have in Jesus in every relationship. Your relationship will not be as fulfilling. Your work will not be as fulfilling. None of the good things that you love to do and God has called you to do will give you what you desire out of them. You will not be content in them. And the reason is you're not teaching yourself and proclaiming the truth of who you are in Jesus in every single situation, in every single day, you need the gospel truth in each of those moments to tell you who you really are so that you can get what you really need and you can reveal instead of trying to become. Every single moment when you stand in front of the mirror, you need to be able to tell yourself, you know what? It's okay to look my best, but my value and my worth are not in my looks. They're in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Because he lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. And my value is in him. When you go to work and you're looking at what success means and you're looking at the jobs that you have to pursue and that you have to do and the accomplishments that you want to make, are those accomplishments for his glory or your glory? One will be fulfilling and one will not. And in every single one of those situations, you need to proclaim to yourself, you know who I am is who Jesus proclaims that I am. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. My value is in him. My accomplishment is in his accomplishment. His resume is my resume. And whatever I am able to accomplish and to do is for his glory and not my own. And then you have joy in it. Then you will do your best in it, but you won't fear, you will reveal It's the same thing when you get home. We could go over every single step of your life. And if you're not proclaiming the gospel in every single one of those situations and in every single one of those moments to tell your own heart who you are in Jesus, then it will not be fulfilling. It will not lead to joy. You will not be content. So listen to me. There is one place. Here it is. There is one safe place for your thoughts, your knowledge, your emotions, your hearts, your desires to live in and to flow out of. And it is the only place that will bring joy. And it is for you to live in the gospel truth. The simple gospel. You do not move past it or you move out of the realm of where God wants you to be. You live in it. You speak it to yourself. And if the church is not presenting it every single week, if your deepest community is not centered around it, if your own words to your own mind are not through the lens of who you are in Jesus, then you will not live the life that God desires for you to live in him. You will find tons of discontentment. You will not enjoy the things that God wants you to enjoy, and you will not live in liberty but enslavement. The gospel is everything. Jesus is everything. And so Paul says, I remind you of this because I want you to grow in this maturity. I want you to be proclaiming it to yourself over and over and over again. Listen, I I said this last week in this service. I don't think I said it in the second service, but immaturity at its foundation is not knowing how to handle freedom. And Paul wants you to be able to walk in the freedom that you have in Christ. A part of us uh, living in joy and having contentment is to, be, is to lean in, is to grow in who we are in Christ. It's to grow in maturity, to understand how to live out the freedom that God has given us in Christ. By his grace, in Christ we have it. And the only way for, for it to infiltrate everything that we are, to captivate every thought, the only way for us to abide in Christ is to constantly proclaim that truth to ourselves, to make Jesus the center of everything. That means every, to abide in Christ, to captivate every thought as every thought is centered through and seen through the lens of who I am in Jesus. That every thought and everything is captivated and and I abide in him in every situation that I'm going into because I'm reminding myself of who I am in Jesus. He is the constant center of everything in my life. So so let me just say this. This is the bulk of what I want to say to you this morning. So don't don't freak out that we're only in verse 1. But I want to say this and, and then I'll move on to summarize everything else that Paul is saying here. If you ever find yourself to be miserable, 
Even in moments of real sorrow and real pain that you have to work through, as I said, it's because your heart is telling yourself a lie. It's because you're not living in the gospel truth. You're not leaning into the work that the Spirit is doing in you, that Jesus is really who he says he is, and in him, you really are who he says you are. You do not need better circumstances to give you more joy. You need more Jesus to give you more joy. And then regardless of your circumstances, you will have joy and contentment because your joy will not be, so, will not be shallow. Listen, the opposite of joy is not misery. The opposite of joy is turning from Jesus, and that leads to misery. Jesus is the answer. It is the safe place for you to be and for your joy to mature. And so Paul says, it's no, it's no harm to me. I don't care. I'm going to proclaim this over and over again because this is what is safe for you. And the all too often outcome to us not leaning into the gospel in everything that we do is that we move from an understanding of who we are in Christ and his work for us and living in that grace and freedom to do and live out the identity that he has provided for us, to, to walk in his way in freedom and not enslavement. And we begin to walk away from him and we fall into either religion or irreligion, empty religion or irreligion. Working really hard to get what we already have in Christ. See, we say it all the time, but the hard work of Christianity is not doing hard work to get to God and get his approval, but it's, it's the hard work of realizing that you are in God and you have his approval. And then living that out in the true identity that he has given you. But if we don't do that, if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time, over and over, I promise your tendency will be to fall into empty religion, do and work really hard and try hard to be better. Or irreligion, which is the same thing foundationally. You're just making up your own rules. You're worshiping a different God. Empty religion is just worshiping a God that is the best version of a man, and we try to do all that we can under the rules that are set before us to somehow get that approval and somehow get to them in the end. Irreligion is just, I have a different God. It's the person that I look at when I look in the mirror. And I still have rules, and I still have things that I try to live by, but religion and irreligion, both of them set resumes up to say, these are the things that I need to accomplish, these are the things that I need to achieve, these are the rules that I need to follow for my life to count. And if I get these things, maybe my life will count. Maybe I'll leave a, a legacy. Maybe my life will be full of meaning. Maybe I'll achieve some sort of purpose. But both of them fall under this false idea that I can count based on what I achieve. And it leads, as we've already said, to frustration and depression and, and misunderstanding. And, and it just leads to total disarray. So he says, watch out, watch out for it. And he gets really serious. Watch out for the dogs. Which when he says that, he's not talking about your little fur baby at home. Right? The dogs are wild dogs. They're out to get you. They're the kind of animal in this time that when you see them, you avoid them. You go the other way. So he says, watch out for the dogs, for they mutilate the flesh. He's saying, look out for false teaching. Listen to me. In the church, it's not always the world that we have to fear pulling us away from Jesus. It's also an empty truth that we preach. It's a Jesusless, gospelless truth. 
And so we can come to church every single week. We can be the people of of God. We can study his word. We can pray without ceasing. We can meet in community together throughout the week, but have a belief uh, without faith, just a knowledge of who God is. And we can walk away from who we truly are in Christ by just having an empty religion to not know who we are in Christ, to not live out the reality of who we are in Christ. And it's meaningless. It's empty religion. And Paul says in his day, he's referring to the Judaizers here who are coming into the predominantly Gentile church and saying they're preaching a truth that is, yes, you can have Jesus, but you also need to do these things. You need to live like a Jew. One of those was to be circumcised, which we know in the new covenant of Jesus, which we don't have time to get into this morning, but he, he fulfills the covenant of the ceremonial law. So in the Old Testament, we have ceremonial law, we have moral law, and we have civil law. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. So we no longer have to go to a temple because we are the temple of God. God lives inside of us. We no longer have to go to a priest to go to God for us because we have an ability to go to God in and of ourselves because Jesus is our mediator through his life, death, and resurrection. He fulfills the ceremonial law. You no longer have to be outwardly circumcised to be a follower of Christ. The civil law continually changes. The moral law is what we walk in Christ in, in freedom. So he fulfills the ceremonial law. And so there's no longer a need for circumcision, but they're coming in and saying, you have to continue to live as a Jew to fulfill these rituals. And so Paul's saying there's a difference between being a follower of Jesus and just a religious or spiritual person. And if we're not constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel truth and living in what Christ has proclaimed us to be and what he has done and by his grace, we will fall into this empty religion or irreligion. And it's just a mirage. It's empty. It's a shadow of the substance that we long for. Now, let me, let me just say this. A lot of times we say that Christianity isn't religion, it's a relationship. That's wrong. All right? It's, it's actually both. I understand the sentiment, but it's actually a relationship that leads to a religion. It's a relationship that leads to a life of worship. So yes, we're saved by grace, but then we walk in God. And, and Paul's saying when we get that backwards, we try to walk toward God for his approval rather than walking with God in his approval. Religion, empty religion, is a Christless faith, but knowing Jesus actually transforms our hearts. It allows us to walk in the truth of who we truly are in Christ. So he says there's a massive difference here, and it's the difference between freedom and enslavement. He says, watch out for the dogs, because if anything in life could get you anything that you want, he goes, I, I would know. I've got it. He, he literally says, if it's cultural rituals, I got it. Culture, I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm not a Johnny come lately. Like I was born into the rituals. Like I was circumcised when I was supposed to be from the, my very birth. I was following all the rituals. He says, success, I got it. I'm, I'm there. As to zeal, genuineness in the faith, a lot of times we think you can believe anything as long as you're sincere. But here's the thing. Paul says you can be sincerely wrong. And he says, as to zeal, I was zealous, man. I was persecuting the church. As to morality, I obeyed all the laws. I was a a Pharisee. I was making up laws for other people to follow. I've kept everything. But here's what he says. All of that counts for nothing. 
And he illustrates it with a profit and loss sheet. He goes, everything that I once did in life to try to accomplish that I thought would mean my life counts. In the count column, I had all of these things. And I was pursuing them and I was doing them. And he goes, I was really good at them. And if anybody has an ability to, to brag or to, be, or, or to make life count based on what they have done, I have done it. Look at my count column. And he says, but then I met Jesus. And Jesus radically saved me and transformed my life. And he goes, I realized suddenly that my math was wrong. That everything that I was putting in the I count column actually was in the I lost column. If it's not all counting for the glory of God. It all leads to frustration. It all leads to depression. It all leads to anxiety. It all leads to fear. And and I feared not accomplishing more. And I feared losing what I had. And so everything that was in the I count column, suddenly when I met Jesus, went into the lost column, unless I'm using it for his glory. Because the only I count thing in life is Jesus. And walking in him and for his glory in all things. He says, everything I counted as, as rubbish, as garbage, as dung. It's actually the closest thing that we, have, that we have to explicit language in the New Testament is what Paul says here. I had one seminary professor that says, as a pastor, you cannot say in, in English what Paul means here or you will lose your job. It is a serious, he's saying it's meaningless. None of it has any worth. Religion, family, money, success, morality, it's all in the lost column. None of it counts unless Jesus is at the center of it all. It will not lead to what you want. He says, we need to know Jesus. And in him, everything else is finished. And we have righteousness in him that we long for. We will with him rise. And when we die, we will be with him for all of eternity, he says in verses 9 through 11. How do we live a life that counts? A life that counts is all about Jesus. And if you want to count, then every single moment of every single day, you need to teach, preach the gospel to yourself. That you might live it out in all that you do through the identity that you have in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're like Peter O'Brien and you preach to thousands and teach preachers or you're a nameless neighbor who loves Jesus. What counts is that you live in the identity of Christ.